Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Let's dive into Psalm 77. And Psalm 77 is an encouraging psalm. The psalms are encouraging because, you know, Psalm 77 is another one of those psalms that deal with a time of tragedy, a time of, you know, uncertainty, when the, the world was flipped upside down quite literally for all of Israel. Psalm 77 is a companion psalm to Psalm 74. And we went through Psalm 74, I think it was last Wednesday or the Wednesday before, it was not too long ago we were in Psalm 74. Uh, but it deals with that historical period when uh, Judah is being led away into captivity uh, by Babylon. It, it, it's really kind of the end for uh, Israel. The northern ten tribes had been led away into captivity just before then, and now the Babylonians have come in and sacked uh, the Jerusalem, and it's, it was a bad situation. It was devastating. And the psalmist is left there really just reeling and saying, oh, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten about us? What are we going to do now? And so the psalm is really broken up into to two halves. The first 10 verses deal with that, oh, Lord, what's going on? How could this happen? Are, are you even uh, around? Are you going to keep your promises to us? Things were so bad that Asaph, the psalmist, was saying, Lord, are, are your promises still in play even? But it ends with this just description of victory, of walking in the victory of the Lord. And, and that's life so often. We face hardship. Our worlds get flipped upside down. But I'm so grateful that at the end of the day, we who are in Christ, who belong to him, we're walking in victory. At the end, we win because he won. We know how the story ends. And all this world and all of its hardships and all of its difficulties are passing away. And guess what? We're going to enter into glory because of the work of the cross. And so Psalm 77 really is an encouraging psalm. And so... uh, Yeah, really, it takes us from disappointment to despair uh, to real confidence in the Lord. That's, that's just kind of the flow of the psalm. So verse 1, uh, we'll, we'll jump in there, Psalm 77. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, and my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed, Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And so, uh, again, it was a time of tragedy that that most of us cannot even relate to. Uh, Millions of Jews were killed. Uh, The temple was burned to the ground. Many were deported, really the rest of the population, except for just some basic farm workers, were all deported to Babylon. Uh, It it really couldn't get much worse. 
And here the psalmist is so troubled uh, that he can't sleep, he can't talk, he, he, he feels abandoned and forgotten, and, and like, again, that the Lord has forgotten his promises. Now, had the Lord abandoned his people? Of course not. Had the Lord forgotten his promises? No way. The Lord never forgets his promises. And that's so important for us to remember because sometimes, again, like I say so often, our circumstances don't line up with God's truth. We say, Lord, what gives? In the long run, God's promises, they hold true. Our circumstances are fluctuating. They're up and down. Jesus told us in this world that we would have trouble, but be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. And what that means is that, man, we can hold on to the end game, even when things are terrible. But right now, there's no end game in sight for Asaph. He's just being buried under a heap of, of trouble, really, but even though he's buried under a heap of sorrow and trouble and he's just inconsolable, there's nothing he can do to find peace, seemingly. But even though he's in that place to where he can't even muster the strength to talk, he can't even sleep. Have you ever been in that place where you're just so troubled that it's like, man, I don't want to talk to anybody and I, I can't sleep. I try to lay my head down and find some peace. And, and all I am met with is just the turmoil of the situation that I'm going through. Asaph was there times 10. But he knew where to go in the midst of that. He just said over and over, no, I'm going to run to the Lord. He has some serious questions for the Lord. Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten us? But he knew where to go. He knew that the Lord still heard him. Despite what he saw going on with his eyes, he knew that the Lord was there and he knew that the Lord heard him. And, you know, it's important because sometimes when we're going through those emotional difficulties, those serious tragedies, when our world has been flipped upside down, our emotions can distort the truth. Have you ever noticed that? Like things are just so blown out of proportion and what's true doesn't even see, seem true in our uh, world anymore. The, yes, the, 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 the joys of yesterday seem like uh, a distant memory, and we wonder, like, Lord, what, what's going on? Where are you? But the psalmist, Asaph here, he found comfort, finally, in what? In remembering God's goodness in the past. He, he begins to remember God's faithfulness in the past, and, and we've talked about this often because the psalms are filled with this principle, that when we are in the midst of the storm, when we are in the midst of the rainy days, when we are in the midst of times of sorrow and sadness, to remember the times when the Lord has seen us through, to remember the times when we have gone through trouble before, and sure enough, just as sure as the sun rose, the Lord saw us through that. Just as sure as the storm clouds gathered, they parted again, and they will. And that's kind of where Asaph lands in these last few verses. He, he takes his eyes off of the trouble. He puts them onto the Lord and says, Lord, I'm going to remember your goodness, that when we were in trouble in the past, you saw us through then. And so that is surety that, Lord, you're going to see us through this trouble. And we as believers can apply that same principle to our lives. We can say, Lord, I know that you have seen me through in the past. And the greatest place the greatest area of our lives that the Lord has seen us through is salvation. We can look back and keep looking back and keep looking back until you get to the cross of Calvary because that is where we find real joy and peace. We can say, Lord, no matter what happens in this world, it's like a vapor. I know that you've got a, a place for me. And so these first 10 verses, 
he's really just going through this emotional uh, hardship of, of just dealing with the tragedy uh, of his day. But after he pauses there in verse 9, and there's a little bit of debate about what Selah means. There are those that would say that, you know, it's the kind of the building to the crescendo of a song, you know, or that high point before it drops off. And there are those who would say it means to really pause and ponder. And I'm of that camp. It really seems to mean, all right, we've read through these things. Now let's stop and contemplate and think about them for a minute. And as Asaph did that, as he kind of went through his whole thing and said, all right, wait a second. Now I'm going to just pause and think about where I'm at. And he lands now in this place where he remembers God's goodness in verse 10. And I said, this is my anguish. He's gone through all of his anguish. And here's the turning point. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your word and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in a moment, he says, you know what? I'm no longer going to meditate on the difficulty that I see around me. I'm not going to continue to mull over the tragedy of the temple being burned to the ground and Jerusalem being sacked and the people being led away into captivity. And I'm going to instead meditate on the goodness of God. He, he, he went from this place of saying, Lord, where are you? To, I remember who you are, Lord. And it's interesting, uh, and I want to touch on this real quickly before we move on, is that uh, there in uh, verse 13, he says, Who is so great a God as our God? And it's interesting, you know, there are those that would use this passage to say that, you know, Jesus is kind of a God among gods. Like, see, there are many gods. And, and there's these references where they, they, they say that God is a God amongst gods. It, it, even here, where it, it, it labels or names uh, who is a great God as our God. Uh, you are the God who does wonders. Uh, it, it's just interesting to me uh, that we see this. And so we know that, you know, there's only one true and living God. There's only one true. But are there multiple gods? And that's the question. You know, you get into these arguments with kind of our Jehovah's Witness friends or whoever uh, that, you know, Jesus is a God. You say, well, you know, that's really not what the Scripture teaches, but they're really solid on this point. And so are there other gods? And the answer to that question is there are other gods. There are many other gods. We see those gods come up all over Scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Dagon, we're going to talk about him tonight. Uh, Molech, remember he was the, uh, the god where they offered up their 
children as sacrifices on the red-hot arms of Molech. Uh, all sorts of just uh, filthy sort of worship things. There were many other gods. See, the thing is, God's little g. That's what you have to understand when, when people want to argue this point. You know, sometimes we feel the need to say, oh, no, there's only one God. There's only one true and living God. Don't misunderstand me. One God, capital G. There are many uh, fallen angels, demonic uh, entities that have power. They don't have any power over us as Christians, none whatsoever. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Never forget that. Uh, but, you know, you read stories like in the book of Daniel, where Daniel prayed and there was an angel that was sent to him. And that angel was held up by the prince of Persia, this other wicked, uh, you know, deity. And then Michael the archangel had to intervene. And, you know, there's real spiritual warfare that's taking place around us. There's lots of little gods. But remember, they're all created. There's only one creator. And all of those little Gs has, have to answer to the big G. And I mean that in the most respectful way. I'm not getting all gangster on you guys. The, the big G as in God. So... Know that when you hear that argument. But, uh, you know, this turning point for Asaph is such a good, uh, it's just such a good model for us that he took his eyes again off of his hardship and put them on the Lord. He made that choice. He said, I'm no longer going to allow myself. And have you guys ever tried that before? Like, I'm not going to think about this anymore. And what happens? You think about it. He said, well, I'm going to really try not to think about it. And then you still think about it. See, you have to replace that thought with something else, something other, something greater. And you replace that thought process. You just don't meditate on nothing. You meditate on goodness. You meditate on the Lord. And that's what uh, Asaph did. He said, I'm not going to meditate. And by the way, we've talked about this word meditate. Meditate just means to, to, to mull over something over and over and over again, like an ungulate chews its cud, like a cow just chews on something over and over again. So we can chew on things that are unhealthy. We can mull on the difficulties of the day. We can mull over the betrayals or hardships or, or whatever. And sometimes we do. We like to relive those moments over and over again and hash them out. But the Bible tells us that we're not to meditate on those things. No, the Bible tells us that we are to take those thoughts captive in the name of Jesus. And we just don't say, no, I'm not going to think about that. We say, no, I'm taking that thought captive in the name of Jesus. You say, man, that sounds weird and all religious. I'm telling you, the Bible tells us to do that, to take that thought captive in the name of Jesus. Try it, do it, and then take it a step further and meditate on those things that are, are good, and holy, and, and pure, and, and wonderful. Uh, meditate on the goodness of the Lord. And that's what Asaph did. He says, no, I'm going to start thinking about God's goodness in the past, how he saw us through the most hardcore national calamity that we've ever experienced, and that was leading them from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And we're going to touch on that in Psalm 78 here in, in just a minute. But we're to take those thoughts captive and to think on things that are, are good and holy and uh, rights. And when we do, when we just think on those things and pray to the Lord, uh, we, we receive that peace, like in Philippians 4, 6. We don't have to be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we make our request known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts 
and your minds. And I love that. Never forget that. Your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus are guarded. When we just cry out to the Lord and make those, those prayers and think on those things that are good and right. You know, there's a, a story in the Gospels where uh, Jesus set a man free from demonic oppression. And he used that as an example because the man, you know, he swept out his house and it was all nice and clean and good. And he said, all right, we're, we're good here. But he didn't replace that empty space with anything. And so seven demons moved in and he was worse off in the end. And it's so important for us to replace those things that we're getting rid of with the goodness of God. So often we just get rid of or say, I'm going to not think about that or I'm going to kick that habit and I'm going to leave it there. But if we leave that door open, man, you better believe that Satan will try to come in and give us trouble. And so think on those things that are good. And so... uh, he began to remember what the Lord had done for him. And what has the Lord done for you, personally, tonight? Like, if we were to do the Thanksgiving exercise, like when you were a kid and you got the piece of paper and the pencil and your parents were like, I want you to write 10 things you're thankful for, right? If I were to pull that, and don't worry, I'm not. Some of you are getting nervous. I'm not going to do that. If I were to say, you know, write 10 things that the Lord has done for you, like 10 places or times the Lord has just seen you through, And the Lord has been so good to you. He's been so good to me. Have those things, man, ready to go to think on and and thank the Lord and choose to meditate, mull over the wonders and the goodness and the works of God in your life instead of the negative things. Uh, We went camping uh, last couple days. I actually woke up in the dirt this morning. It was fantastic. And then I I came home. We watched fireworks over on the coast. But uh, we pulled into Crescent City and you know, it's the 4th of July, Crescent City's small, and there is traffic everywhere, and they're having a parade, and I can't even remember what it was about, but I was just grumping about everything, and uh, my lovely wife was just like, all right, you, you done? I'm like, what? She's like, you have been negative Nelly. She calls me negative Nelly. That's like, you've been negative Nelly for like the last hour, and I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. See, I have this tendency to to lean on and hang on to the negative. I think we all do. I think it's just a natural disposition that we have in our carnal nature. But instead of mulling over and and hanging on to the negative, man, grab a hold of the goodness of the Lord and meditate on that. And that's really what this psalm is about. That's the message. Uh, This is what G. Campbell Morgan said. The message of this psalm is that to brood on sorrow is to be broken and disheartened, while to see God is to sing on the darkest day. Once we come to know that our years are of his right hand, there is light everywhere. And I love that. No matter what you're going through, the Lord is with you, and he has a purpose, and he has uh, a plan. Uh, chapter 78. Now, chapter 78 is uh, 72 verses, so I'm going to be reading some chunks. Uh, but 78 uh, is uh, another history psalm. It deals with the history of Israel, uh, that the Lord had delivered his people from Egypt. It really goes back to that uh, national crisis, right, Egypt, but it was also a, a, nat- a national blessing in, in that the Lord delivered them. It was a national miracle in what the Lord did in that part of their history. But history is so, so important. And it's been said that those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. And if there's one thing that we have learned from history, it's that we don't learn from history. (laughs) 
Uh, we just don't seem to learn from history. And Asaph here, he reviews the history of his people. Uh, and there's this theme that he, he sees. It's this track record that they have of being forgetful of God's goodness. He, even as he was at the beginning of Psalm 77. It's this track record of kind of being foolish and not heeding the words of the Lord. Uh, and it's a track record that Israel had of being faithless, of doing their own thing and going out on the Lord spiritually. And there's lots of lessons in this psalm for us today. Uh, there's lots of warnings that, that we would not forget, again, God's goodness to us in our past, that we would not foolishly disregard God's law, and that we would not be faithless and uh, really go out on the Lord spiritually like they did. And although this is Israel's history, and I know that you guys are familiar with Israel's history, the Psalms touch on it all the time because it was a big deal in the Jewish culture, and this happens to be a Jewish book that we're reading. I know you guys know it, uh, and, you know, sometimes we can be prone to say, well, you know, this is Israel's history. H how does this really even apply to me today, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later? But Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, referring to Israel's history, talking to the Jews then, saying, now all of these things happened to them, uh, the ancient Israelites in, during the Exodus, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I like that because we can get into these passages that are all about the history of Israel. And we go, ah, oh, yada, 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 yada. We know it already. And we can just be prone to kind of, you know, gloss over and just check out. But Paul says, hey, don't do that because these lessons, they're examples for us. Don't check out. They're written for our admonition. Uh, if you think that you know it already, boy, take heed lest you fall. Never fall into that place. And no matter how many times you hear a Bible story, never think you've got it. I never feel like I've got like a corner on the Bible, like I got it. I understand it through and through 100%. There's nothing. Never. You'll never get to that place. Don't fall into that place. And so uh, Psalm 78 uh, is a history psalm, but there, it really is packed with lots of good application for us tonight. So verse 1 of Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and know, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." And may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not set its heart right and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So Asaph, right out of the gate, says, hey, you know what? We're going to look over some uh, history here. We're going to review some history. But this history is super important for you to understand. And not just for you to understand that you not repeat it. But it's important that you teach your children 
these precepts. In fact, the psalmist goes on to command that these, uh, these men teach their children uh, the law and the ways and the testimony and the history of Israel. Don't hide it from the children. Telling it to the generation to come. Uh, telling the generation to come of, of you know, uh, God's goodness, praising the Lord, uh, of God's strength, of God's wonderful works, all of those things. As you're sharing the Lord with your children, man, share the, the, the way that the Lord has really spoken into your life and, and, and been real in your life, where you have, you know, just those moments where you've praised the Lord, those moments where you've seen the Lord, uh, his strength in your life, and where you've seen just those wonderful works. Um, when Asaph here is, is kind of making this, uh, this point, to, hey, make sure and to, to, to teach your children, they are to teach their children, uh, you know, the generations of, of Jacob uh, and, and Israel. Um, it, it's interesting that, uh, you know, as he goes through uh, just these little, uh, we, we come across these little snippets or these little uh, phrases. For he established a, a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, uh, uh, which he commanded our fathers they should be known. Now, what's the testimony being spoken of, uh, of, of Jacob and, and Israel? Uh, well, Jacob and Israel, as you guys know, is, is the same dude. Uh, he just had his name changed. Uh, remember, Jacob and Esau, they were twins. And in the womb, they wrestled. And as uh, Esau, the older brother, was coming out, uh, Jacob grabbed a hold of his heel. And Jacob, his name literally means heel snatcher or supplanter. Uh, and, and Jacob in his life was the kind of guy who was always working an angle. He was always... Uh, playing the game, even with, remember his Uncle Laban, his Uncle Laban kind of ripped him off, but then he went back and he, he played the angle with his Uncle Laban and he, he did some things. Jacob was always playing an angle. Uh, remember what he did to, to con his brother out of his birthright and also out of his blessing, the whole thing that they worked up with his mom? Jacob was always this one who was kind of leaning on his own conniving and, and, and kind of lying ways. Heel snatcher. But he didn't stay Jacob. Uh, the Lord changed his name from Jacob to what? To Israel. And Israel means governed by God. So he goes from supplanter to being governed by God, which is, is super important. And so uh, that is the, the, the history that the psalmist is saying, hey, remember, teach your kids how the Lord has done this in our country, to our people. Uh, command the fathers to make known to their children uh, the testimony to come uh, might know from generation to generation that they would set their hope on that. They would not forget his works, that they would obey his commands, that they would learn from the mistakes of their father. Because as the psalmist said, there was lots of times when the forefathers were just blowing it. They were rebellious and stubborn. Their hearts were not close to God. They were not faithful to the Lord. Uh, the Exodus generation uh, that, that died in the wilderness, they died there in the wilderness because they didn't trust the Lord. Remember, the whole generation had to die before Israel could enter into the promised land. 
The third generation, once they got into Canaan, by the time of Joshua, boy, they were beginning to do their own thing. They had turned to idols. And then uh, before long, the ten tribes, they forsook the law. There was this division in Israel. The ten northern tribes went their way. The two southern tribes went their way. And the, the northern ten tribes, they were crazy off the hook into all of their uh, idolatry and uh, worshiping the golden calves and, and, and everything else. And so the psalmist is saying, teach your children all of these important things about your history that they might not repeat the mistakes of their fathers. Teach your children. And man, if that does not resonate with us today, I don't know what does. Man, teach your children. It is so important that we teach our children the precepts of the Lord, to teach our children the ways of God. Because, you know, if you don't, somebody else will. And not teach them the precepts of the Lord, but teach them the ways of the world. And there is a real battle for the hearts and the minds of our kids today. And you might just you laugh me off or shrug me off or whatever and say, man, you're just being extreme and that sort of stuff doesn't happen and it's just the things that you see on the news. But man, this stuff is actually taking place. I mean, it was a year and a half, two years ago when there was the whole sort of gay, uh, you know, uh, choir group in San Francisco that sang this whole song about coming for the children. Uh, we're going to come for your children. We're going to come for your children. We're going to come for your children. And then not too long ago, there was a... a, a Parade. I'm so glad June is over. I never thought I would come to loathe June, but I'm so sick of seeing God's rainbow tread underfoot by just disgustingness. Uh, but at one of these events where they're just celebrating debauchery, as they're chanting, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. And they're all coming out of these same liberal institutions that are pumping out teachers. You see these teachers all over the place that have replaced the American flag with a rainbow flag who aren't doing the Pledge of Allegiance, but they're pledging their allegiance to the pride flag. It's crazy how teachers, and I'm not saying all teachers, right? We have teachers in our congregation that are wonderful teachers, and I love them, and they love the Lord, and they pray for their kids, and that's great, but they're is an agenda, and there are a lot of teachers that are, are walking in step with that, and it's a scary thing. And when we farm out the education of our kids, it does not mean that we will not give an account to the Lord for their education. Know that. Moms, dads, when you stand before the Lord and you say, well, I didn't teach them that. It was the school teacher. The Lord has charged us with raising our kids to know him. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he shall not depart from it. And we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles often. It's that feast where all the families would come together, and it was that camp and trip feast. But at the heart of that feast was Dad, under the stars, telling his kids about the goodness of God, who the Lord was in their nation, and, and who the Lord was to, to him personally. Uh, make sure you're teaching your kids uh, who the Lord is. Uh, verse 9 kind of gets into the, the history of, proper of, of Israel. We start to really kind of get into uh, the legitimate history. The children of Ephraim, verse 9, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle, did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did 
in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused the waters to, uh, to run down like rivers. And so this is really just going through uh, the Exodus story. Uh, it starts out with this mention of, of Ephraim. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. It says Ephraim turned back. And you say, well, what's going on with Ephraim turning back in, in, in battle? And there really is no historical reference for this. Uh, it really is kind of a puzzling thing. There was no real battle where Ephraim just bailed. Uh, so th- there's lots of commentators that say, well, is this a physical battle? Is this a spiritual battle that's being spoken of? I'm really not going to go down that path. <coughs> but we do know about Ephraim, Ephraim, if you want to say it like that, uh, is that it is, it's another name for the northern ten tribes, right? So when the, there was the, the civil war and the two southern tribes became Judah and the ten northern tribes became Israel, like I said, Israel went crazy, into idolatry. Uh, Jeroboam, their king, set up a false worship center. He uh, set up false priests, false sacrifices, false religious holidays. They worshiped these golden calves. It was really something else. Uh, So there was this treachery to the Lord. They didn't keep the covenant. Uh, They didn't walk according to uh, the statutes of the Lord. And again, all of this is kind of in reference to, hey, remember the past so you don't make those same mistakes. And this was a, a big, big kind of, uh, you know, a black mark on Israel's history where half of the nation uh, bailed on the Lord and worshiped these false idols. And so they refused to walk in the, the ways of the Lord. And there's great danger in that, in, in not walking in the ways of the Lord. They refused to walk in God's covenant. And there are many professing Christians today who say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian, And they say that with their mouth, but their actions don't live up to that statement whatsoever. Uh, They say they're professing Christians, but they keep not the covenant. They refuse to walk in his law. And this was a warning for Israel to say, hey, listen, uh, make sure that you're walking according to the law. And there's a good warning in that for us as believers, that we ought to be walking according to God's scriptures. Our lives should not be contrary uh, to God's uh, word. And so, uh, yeah, so it gets into the, the Exodus, uh, into uh, Egypt. Um, the field of, of Zoan was just this uh, region uh, in Egypt. Um, talks about the dividing of the sea. Of course, the, the Red Sea was divided that they might walk across on dry ground. Uh, you guys are familiar with that story. Um, and, you know, again, it's one of those things. You say, oh, we're familiar with that story. Uh, but what an amazing thing it was. A whole entire nation who had been, you know, captive, slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now God opens up an entire ocean. I was just at the ocean. I, I was trying to do some surf fishing. And I was like, man, this is ridiculous. The waves are like six feet tall. Could you imagine if the ocean just went... Into two heaping sides, we wouldn't think that that was boring. 
We'd be like, that is a miracle. That's what happened. They walked across on dry land, and then it closed back up over the Egyptian army. Uh, he goes into talking about uh, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And again, the Lord was so gracious to them in the wilderness, so good to them uh, that, you know, they're in the desert where it was sunny and hot. He said, I'm going to give you a cloud every single day. So wonderful. So wonderful. I love the clouds in summer. Boy, on Sunday, if you were at the park, it was great, but it was hot. One cloud, and oh, Lord, just a cloud. If it just come in front, it would be so nice and so good. Uh, they got that every day. Shade is very important in the desert, and every day they had this cloud that was there uh, giving them uh, relief. Uh, but the big deal about the cloud is really what it represented, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. You know, because in the desert, it gets freezing cold at night. And so there was the pillar of cloud turned to a pillar of fire. And it gave them warmth and light. And the Lord really took care of them. But the best part about that cloud was that it was God's presence. His Shekinah glory. That the Lord was with his people. That was the greatest blessing that they could have really ever experienced. Uh, verse 16 talks about the rock. It's great to have shade. Boy, exposure is a, a, a gnarly thing in the desert. It really is. But water, you can't get on without water. A, a couple, three days, best case scenario. In the desert, well, it's like a day and a half if the conditions are right. You're toast. You're dried out. And so the Lord was so good. He gave them fresh water out of, of the rock that satisfied uh, their, their thirst. And uh, there was the riches and, and the freedom that they experienced when they were being set free from Egypt. Remember, they went around to all of their neighbors. And, uh, go and ask your neighbors for, for earrings. And they went and they collected all of the, the, the riches. And the Lord kind of set them free, out on their way. Part of the, 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 the sea defeated the army. And Asaph here is saying, you know what? Teach your kids about God's faithfulness. It's so easy for us to forget about God's faithfulness. Uh, remember them and, and teach them uh, to your kids. Uh, that rock uh, was super important in the wilderness. Uh, that rock uh, was Jesus. That rock that gave them refreshment and quenched their thirst, it was Jesus. And you say, come on, that was Jesus. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians, that the rock was Jesus, the rock that followed him, oh, pardon me, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 4, not, not 2 Corinthians. But the rock was Jesus. Uh, food, verse 18, how the Lord provided for them food in the wilderness. Uh, another uh, point of uh, provision that uh, they tested God in their heart by asking for food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and give them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, 
feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. So another point of provision was the manna. Every morning they woke up and man, there was the manna, fresh for them, ready to eat. And, uh, you know, they got sick and tired of the manna, basically is what it boiled down to. They had manna every way that they could have it. And they said, man, we're just sick and tired of this manna. They began to complain about God's provision in their life. They became ungrateful. And they said, oh, man, if we could just go back to Egypt. It was so great back there. We had all the spices and the onions and the leeks. And it was so wonderful. And, and was it wonderful back in Egypt? It, it was terrible back in Egypt. It, it was not good in Egypt at all. Uh, they were remembering history wrong. They were remembering the good old days uh, in a wrong way. But the Lord was so gracious in providing the manna for them that every morning they could go out and they could gather up as much manna as they needed for the day. And they would be completely provided for. And then uh, the day before the Sabbath, they could go and they can gather twice as much as they needed so they wouldn't have to gather on the Sabbath day. The Lord was so good. But if you tried to save up more than that, like, I'm just going to store it all up so I don't have to collect manna for the next month. Worms would get into the manna, and it would turn rancid, and the Bible says it would stink. If you were lazy and you didn't collect your manna at all, by the time the sun came up, the sun melted it away. Very interesting the way the Lord... Uh, you know, kind of set this provision about. And in the way the Lord set up this provision, there's kind of a, a picture of our devotional time with the Lord, kind of built into that. That the Lord is abundantly available like the manna is in our lives. But here's the thing, you can't store it up. You can't say, you know what, I'm going to do devotions all day today and I'm going to be good for the month. No more meeting with the Lord in the morning. I'm just going to be set. I'm going to store it up. It doesn't work that way. The Lord has given us today our daily bread. We need to go to him every day for that. We need to come each morning. And there really is something sweet about that time of the day. When you get up before the world has gotten going to just meet with the Lord. Because if you neglect that time, you know what happens? Just like the manna burned up, boy, that special time in the morning burns up. And it's not that you can't meet with the Lord at 10 o'clock or at 11 o'clock. But I tell you what, there's something special that is fleeting about meeting the Lord before your day heats up. And so I, I like the kind of built-in sort of, uh, you know, picture that was there. Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. Jesus, it was his custom to get up and pray before it was light. Uh, so, uh, man, do that. Experience that. It, it really is good. Uh, but again, they complained about it. They looked back to Egypt longingly, uh, you know. But Egypt is a picture, is a type of the world. And, you know, sometimes we can, in our carnal nature, be like Israel and have kind of, you know, long-term memory loss where we look back and say, oh, man, I remember the good old days. And those weren't good old days. The good old days, that's a lie that you're telling yourself. I, I'm telling you, I've, I've caught myself saying that, oh man, the good old days, those weren't good old days. When I was in those days, I loathed those days. I hated them. But now for some reason, I look back and say, oh, 
don't want to be like Lot's wife. I don't want to look back at those days and, and get stuck there uh, in the past because I know that those old days, and it's just what the world had to offer. And there's nothing that this world has to offer that can, can satisfy me the way that the Lord does. Verse 33. Actually, I think we're in verse 32. 32. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Oh, you know, I got to stop back. So when they complained about the manna, remember what the Lord did? The Lord sent the, the quail in. The Lord sent flocks and flocks of quail. They said, we don't want to eat manna no more. We want some meat. And the Lord said, all right, you can have meat. And they ate meat until they barfed it out their noses, until it killed them, literally. And uh, again, that, that story there, it is a picture of what ingratitude looks like in the eyes of the Lord. It's just gross. It's God's will for us to be thankful in all circumstances. So after this, in spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. And when he slew them, then they sought him and they returned and sought earnestly for the Lord. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high and their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come uh, again. And so the Lord occasionally had to bring punishment uh, to his people. Uh, it, it was not something that the Lord enjoyed. It's not something that his people enjoyed. Uh, but it was something that was necessary because their hearts were far from the Lord and he used uh, kind of uh, this discipline to, to bring their hearts back into a good place. Uh, he restrained his anger over and over and over again uh, because he knew their frame. But at, at a certain point, he brought in discipline. He knows our frame. That's what Psalm 103, 14 says, that God knows our frame. He's patient. Uh, he is just. But he also brings discipline uh, into our lives. Um, you know, 2 Peter 3, uh, 9 says that he's not slack uh, as men consider slackness. Uh, but he's long-suffering. He, he, he's patient. He doesn't want to wipe us out. He wants us to repent. Uh, and so the Lord will take that, you know, stance of being so patient. He's been so patient in my life. But like I talked about uh, on Sunday, it, it, is he cares more about our eternal state than he does about our, our present comfort. And I am glad for that. Um, and so he, he eventually uh, deals with his people and he eventually deals with us uh, the same because we belong to him. Verse 40. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the enemy. When he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zon. Turned their rivers into blood and the streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. And he destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the fiery lightning. He cast 
On them, the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. And he made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on, on safely so that they did not fear but the sea overwhelmed their enemies and brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquainted or acquired. Pardon me. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. And so uh, this really is a portion of Scripture that deals with the exodus through the wilderness into Canaan. Uh, that, you know, it deals with all the plagues that were there in Egypt Again, Asaph reviewing just the goodness uh, and the power of the Lord. Uh, so it goes through the, the plagues of Egypt, how the Lord led them like a flock in the wilderness. Uh, and he was their shepherd. He's our shepherd. John 10 says that he's a good shepherd, that he's the great shepherd. Uh, and the Bible likens us to sheep. Uh, and, and he led them. He led them into the promised land. Uh, the Psalms tell us that he, he leads us beside still waters and into green pastures. Uh, and he does that for his name's sake. Uh, you know, God's people were stubborn. They were rebellious. They were disobedient. But the Lord never forsook them. The Lord never washed his hands of them and said, all right, I tried. I'm leaving you guys in the desert. Good luck. No, the Lord saw them through. He, he beat back all of the enemies in the land. He, he, he gave them uh, the, the land, their inheritance. And they were rebellious again. And did the Lord forsake them then? No, he just kept on making provision and, and looking after. Sure, there was this ebb and flow of discipline and repentance and discipline and repentance and hardship. But the Lord gave them uh, their inheritance in the promised land, even though they had walked in disbelief, even though when they got into the promised land that they weren't so faithful. He knew that they were going to be unfaithful even in the future, and he still gave them uh, that inheritance. And it's interesting that, you know, you think about the inheritance that Israel received. You know, you go and you look at the geographical description in the Bible of that inheritance, and it's this huge swath of land. But they really only took control of a tiny portion of it. The battle was won. The victory was theirs. All they had to do was walk in it. And we sit here and say, man, why didn't you guys walk in it? But we're in the same situation. We're walking in a land where... The victory is already won. The Lord has gone before us. The victory is secured. He has so much for us, but how much of what he has secured are we willing to walk in? I was just thinking about that this morning. Like, how much of what you have for me, Lord, am I really walking in? Not much of it, to be honest. Like, the Lord has so much for us. What's holding you back? What's holding me back? Why don't we walk in all the Lord has for us? Fear, disobedience, distraction. There's many things. And we ought to walk in all that God has for us. And they should have too. But what I love is that just like Israel had an inheritance, we have an inheritance. First Peter 
3.4 tells us that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade, that's reserved for us in heaven, who are kept by the power of God through faith by salvation or faith for salvation, ready to be uh, revealed at the last time. We have an inheritance for us stored in heaven. I, I, I'm so glad that no matter how bad I blow it in this world, it, I, I'm not walking in everything. I should, I want to, I desire to. But even if I blow it, my inheritance isn't spoiled, that the Lord is going to, to see me through. It, it, I love that verse in 1 Peter 3, that our inheritance, it's heaven. It's stored for us where we can't mess it up. That's encouraging because when I sit back and say, oh man, there's all that I should have taken hold of, Lord, and I'm just occupying this little piece and I can get down and I can get blue. And I say, but you know what? My real inheritance is in heaven. And Lord, you've secured that. And it keeps me from going inward and walking in condemnation. And it helps me walk in conviction and say, no, Lord, I'm gonna walk in all that you have for me. It's just weird the way that that works. And so remember that your inheritance, it's stored for you in heaven where you can't mess it up. Verse 56. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God. And they did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. And when God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh and the tent that he placed among men and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword. And was furious with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows uh, made no lamentation. Uh, it was a bad day when the nation of Israel had to deal with the consequences of their sin. We've been talking about that a lot. The north was led into captivity by the Assyrians, just like the Lord said that they would be. And the south was led into captivity by the Babylonians, just like the Lord said, if you don't walk in obedience. See, here's this thing where we don't necessarily walk in all that the Lord has for us. But there's also consequence for our sin. And it's important for us to, to remember that. The Lord is patient, but eventually he will bring discipline into your life. And discipline isn't fun, uh, but it's necessary. And the discipline that the Lord did in their lives uh, brought forth tremendous uh, fruit uh, in Israel. Uh, and, and there's lots to the story that I don't really have time to, to touch on uh, tonight. Uh, but it really is neat to look into uh, what was going on. Uh, Israel really had turned their backs uh, on the Lord. They all men did what was right in the, the sight of the Lord, or in the sight of their own eyes there in Joshua. And, and then they moved into the time of the kings, and the kings uh, slowly but surely degraded into idolatry. Uh, the ark was stolen by uh, the Philistines. They used it as this good luck charm. Uh, they brought it before Dagon. It's just all sorts of history that we really don't have time to get into. But the bottom line is that the Lord was patient, but he brought discipline uh, eventually. Verse 65, and we'll finish out. Then the Lord awoke from his sleep like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies and put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. 
And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds and followed the ewes that had young he had uh, brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. And so, uh, you know, it's God awoke. It's this figurative uh, way of speaking about the Lord that, I mean, eventually the Lord did bring uh, victory. Uh, you know, the ark was stolen by the Philistines and the Lord brought uh, victory in that situation. Again, uh, Dagon, they, they brought the ark before Dagon. You guys remember the story of that fish god and in the morning Dagon fell face first in front of the ark and they're like, oh, I must have tipped over. So they set him back up and the next day, uh, you know, Dagon was fallen over and his head was gone and his arms were gone and and they're like, oh man, I think we messed up. And then they got smitten with hemorrhoids and death and it was not good. So, uh, but the Lord fought that battle. Uh, in that battle, Hophni and Phinehas, they, they were killed. But God uh, awoke figuratively uh, there. And, you know, even in uh, their future, when they would be led in, into Babylonian captivity, the Lord continued to fight for them. And they came back to the promised land and they rebuilt the temple. And then they were again uh, dispersed. And now Israel is a, a nation again. It's like, it's like the Lord has his hand on those people. And when I see that, it's an encouragement to me because they blow it and they repent and they're restored and they blow it and they repent and they're restored. And it's like the Lord saying, I've got you no matter what. Your inheritance is in heaven. Do not forget that. See, the Lord rejected Ephraim. The Lord's changing things up. He says, no, my chosen uh, you know, tribe is going to be Judah uh, and I'm going to raise up David. See, instead of throwing out the whole nation, he said, no, we're just going to do some rearranging and I'm going to stick with you guys and I'm going to do a work uh, with you still. God still had a plan, is what I'm getting at. Even in the midst of their trials, even in the midst of the trials and difficulties they brought on themselves, God still had a plan through all the ups, through all the downs, through the obedience, through the disobedience, through the failures, through the victories. God saw them through. And that encourages me because it reminds me that God's going to see us through. He's going to see me through. And it's one thing to say, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm glad, Lord, you're going to see me through this, this difficulty that I had nothing to do with. But it's another thing to remember that even when we get our own selves in a pickle, that the Lord is going to see us through. Because we are his workmanship. Because we are his sheep. Because we belong to him. He's going to see us through because of his goodness. First, uh, or Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I love that. It's so good for us to uh, look back on the history of Israel and learn those lessons. Hey, we ought not to be foolish. We ought not to be disobedient. We ought not to be stiff-necked. We ought to follow the Lord and walk in all the blessings that he has for us. We ought to strive to take all of the land. The victory is won. Let us walk in all the Lord has for us. But when we mess up, and there's great comfort in knowing that the Lord is still on the throne, that he still has a plan, that he's going to see us through, that we belong to him, and that he is going to, to work things out in the end. He's going to finish the good work that he started in you. So when we're going through it, man, stand on those promises. Uh, remember the Lord's goodness to us. And also going back to Psalm 77, man, when you're going through those seasons of, of trial, man, remember the times that the Lord has, has seen you through. It's super important to not meditate on the difficulty, but meditate on God's goodness.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.